Just the other day, I was listening to a Jewish rabbi talk about a crisis in Judaism. And of course, we often think of anti-Semitism out in the world, which is a terrible thing. But do you know what he was speaking about as one of the great crises facing the Jewish people? He was talking about intermarriage. And he was discussing the difficulties that come whenever one person marries another person of a different faith. And I found it so fascinating because he had great statistical evidence that these kind of marriages fail and fail often. And of course, in the Christian church, uh, where I'm a pastor out on the North Shore of Long Island, we have been talking about these issues for many, many years. The Church of Jesus Christ has often wrestled with the question, can a person who follows the Lord Jesus marry a person who has no interest in Christ? And this rabbi was making the case and pleading his argument to Jewish people that they do well to marry in the faith, and then they have uh, the same core values and priorities as they labor through life together, shoulder to shoulder. This is an interesting question I'd like to explore with you today, because about 2,600 years earlier in the Old Testament, there was a man named Nehemiah who was the governor over the Jewish people after the exile, and Nehemiah, it turns out, was dealing with the very same thing. Now, if you know the end of the book of Nehemiah, you know that Israel has been drifting. Israel has been compromising. And what happened is that although they had had a wonderful and marvelous covenant renewal ceremony back in chapter 10, and they had pledged their allegiance to follow the Lord, now, after Nehemiah returns from a time away back in Persia, and he comes back to Judah, he discovers that the people have drifted away from their commitment to the Lord, and, and God is no longer Lord of their, of their finances, and God is no longer Lord of their time. And they were saying things like, it's my money, I'll use it however I want to use it, and, and it's my time, and I'll spend it however I want to spend it, regardless of what God says about the Sabbath. But then, to his great chagrin, Nehemiah discovers that God is no longer Lord of their relationships. And it's as if the people say, well, I'll hang out with whoever I want to hang out with, and I will marry whoever I want to marry, regardless of what God says about it. And if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, at that great covenant renewal, where these people were absolutely clear that God was the Lord of their relationships, they say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And what they understood in their moment of sanity was that spiritual integrity and spiritual solidarity and unity in covenant relationship with God is the bedrock for a life that glorifies God and a family that glorifies God. Israel knew 
that a healthy marriage and a healthy family is grounded in the Lord. And we in the Christian church understand the same in the New Covenant. And the Bible tells us, it says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the Christian church has understood that in the family, in the marriage, in the home, and of course in the church at large, that Jesus Christ is to be the organizing center of our lives. That's what we want in our church here on the North Shore of Long Island. Uh, and this is what we want for our marriages. I'm a pastor, and I can tell you that working with people in their marriages is one of the most delightful and one of the most challenging things that I do. R.C. Sproul says that marriage is the most precious of human institutions. It is also the most dangerous. Here's what he says. He writes, into our marriages we pour our greatest and deepest expectations. We put our emotions on the line, and there we can achieve our greatest happiness. But we can also experience our greatest disappointment and the most frustration and the most pain. So there's a lot at stake, isn't there? Marriage really matters. I've mentioned before on this broadcast that I've written a little book with David Paulison and called Pre-Engagement, Five Questions to Ask Yourselves. And I just want to say right now that anyone who's listening is welcome to have a free copy of it. You can just call our church office at 516-922-7322 and we will be glad to send you a copy of this because the booklet is about five questions that you should ask yourselves before you get engaged. And the first question is, are you both Christians? That is to say, is there a spiritual solidarity and unity and compatibility in your lives? You know, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, Moses told Israel at the Constitution of Israel, he says, you shall not intermarry with the pagans, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And as I read earlier in 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Apostle Paul says to the Christian church, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this image of being unequally yoked is foreign to those of us who live as you might say, in a post-agrarian society. That is to say, we live in cities. I live in the metro New York area, and I haven't seen an ox joined to another ox by a yoke. What, what is that all about? Well, the yoke was a large wooden collar that would fit over the neck and the shoulders of two oxen, and they would pull together the plow to dig up the ground and to pull out the rocks. And you would have two oxen of similar size pulling together in order to make it happen. So why would Paul say, do not be unequally yoked? And why would he use this interesting farming metaphor? Well, 
Just think about it. Suppose the farmer had an ox and a camel. Why would an ox and a camel be yoked together? Well, the ox walks at one speed. The camel walks at another speed. They're different height. They have a different gait. It just doesn't make sense for them to be together. But sometimes, maybe, the ox looks at the camel and says, Nice legs. <laughs> maybe the camel looks at the ox and says, What strength! Terrific earning potential! And so they might get yoked together, but both of them will chafe against the yoke. They won't be able to pull in tandem. And the same is true when the follower of the Lord, the disciple of Jesus, is yoked with someone who has no interest in Christ at all. So again, here's the question. Why would people become unequally yoked and marry outside the faith? And here I think there are two main reasons. There are internal reasons and there are external reasons. And here's, here's what happens on the inside. And if you're listening today and you're single or divorced or widowed and you aspire to marriage, I think maybe you can understand what happens. Here's what happens. The human heart wants good things. Legitimate things. Let's make a list. The heart wants companionship. The heart wants partnership. The heart wants intimacy with another human being. The heart wants sexual delight. The heart wants financial strength that comes from two people working together. The heart wants someone to love. The heart wants someone to love them. The heart wants children. And, and all these things are good things. According to the Bible, in many places, these are legitimate desires. But here's what happens. These desires, these legitimate desires, grow and become big, and they become what the Bible calls the idols of the heart. They become driving forces in our lives. They become functionally our Lord. And when you want partnership, intimacy, sexual delight, companionship, children, someone to love, someone to love me, and any of these things grows to, its, to an ultimate ruling desire, it drives us. And over time, there's disappointment. And there's discouragement. I was, I, was, I was going to church. I was hoping to find a Christian spouse. And, and God hasn't brought them into my life. And there might even be despair that I don't have these things. And then what happens in your heart and my heart when legitimate desires become ruling desires? It leads us to say, I must have this. And I don't care what it takes. And it doesn't matter what God says. These are the controlling features of my life, and I will find a partner even if they do not love the Lord. And I will date people uncritically. And so you do, and you meet someone, and you experience the tingles. And to the teenagers 
who might be listening, and we have a lot of teenagers in our church. I talk to them about what happens when they get the tingles, you know? Suddenly you meet someone and they're extremely attractive to you, perhaps physically attractive or emotionally or intellectually attractive, and you obsess on them and you get fascinated by them and you can't stop thinking about them. And their spiritual life really recedes into the background as far as you're concerned. And you know, you get the tingles and some of the uh, women say to their friends, and then last night he drops the rock. <laughs> What's that? You know, he pulls out the diamond ring and they squeal with delight. And, and their ruling desire is to be married to someone uncritically as to what their spiritual life is like. And parents, so many of us parents feed this into the children. Why is that? Well, it's because parents want the same thing for their children, right? And, and the parents want their son or their daughter to have partnership and intimacy and financial security. And they want someone to, their child to find someone to love and someone who loves them well to give them children. And the mom and dad experience all these legitimate desires for their offspring, but they become ruling desires. And the spiritual life of the potential partner seems to recede into the background. Back in the time of Nehemiah, marriage was all about money. It was all about political alliance. And down in verse 28, you see that the family of the high priest, Eliashib, enters into an alliance with the wicked Sanballat, the Horonite, so that his grandson marries Sanballat's daughter. And it was just about the worst thing that you could imagine. Here's what Nehemiah says, Nehemiah 13.23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so this is what happens. There is often an internal compulsion toward marriage that disregards God's demand that we marry inside the faith because these legitimate desires become ruling desires, or as the Bible calls them, idols of the heart. But right at this point, I'm sure there's someone listening, and they're saying, you know, Pastor John, this is all just too narrow. 
you actually sound intolerant. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Don't be so narrow. Why do people say this? Well, I think you know the answer. In our culture today, religion is like a great buffet table. And, and there are many good choices, you know, and some people prefer the religion down at this end of the buffet, while others go to the lower side of the buffet. And, of course, then in our culture, it doesn't matter if they choose a spouse who prefers food from a different part of the buffet table. After all, New York is a melting pot. America is a melting pot, and it's actually virtuous. And they see it as a virtue. And parents sometimes even see it as doing something good for their child. And even I've heard moms and dads say something like, well, I want to let my child decide for themselves about God and to develop their own spiritual priorities. And I want them to pick and choose for themselves. Well, according to the Bible, that's not a virtue. When moms and dads do that, they're really abdicating their parental responsibility to pass on the faith in the Lord. It's so interesting in the text I read from Nehemiah 13, it says that they lost their language. So they couldn't even read the Bible. And what was happening is the parents were just going with the flow of the spirit of the age. And it led to a generation of children who didn't know scripture, who had no spiritual compass. You know, at, at the North Shore Community Church this week, we're having vacation Bible school. And we have uh, so many young children so filled with excitement. And they're learning and memorizing the scriptures. They're learning the language of the gospel. And that's what we train our families to do at our church. Uh, and, and we're actually known here in Oyster Bay as a church that wants to train children in the ways of the Lord. But to do that, we have to stand against the trend of our culture that wants to deny that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him because the culture says that's intolerant. You know, there's a book that Don Carson wrote entitled The Intolerance of Tolerance. And he says the main thrust of our age is there is no absolute truth. And so to be tolerant is just to let everybody believe whatever they want to believe. And you see, <laughs> this definition of tolerance has changed from what it was in our parents' generation. Generations ago, tolerance was a good thing, but tolerance meant we agree to disagree in our pursuit of the truth. <laughs> but today, tolerance means there is no absolute truth. And so you let everybody believe what they want to believe. And, and do you see the double whammy that comes against single people? What tempts them to be unequally yoked? First, on a personal level, they have legitimate and wonderful desires for intimacy and partnership that become frustrated and then become ruling desires. And then they are surrounded externally by a culture where the highest virtue is this, again, what we would call an intolerant tolerance that says, don't be narrow. Be willing to marry and embrace people who eat from different parts of the buffet table of religion. And it extends then to the dating and courtship habits of Christian people. You know, if the Bible does teach 
that you should not marry a non-Christian if you are a Christian, then someone says, well, what about dating? What about courtship? Can I date a non-Christian? And what we deduce by good and necessary consequence is that if courtship is about finding a spouse and if you are called to marry in the Lord, as the Bible says, then it is obvious. Why would you court a non-Christian unless the idols of your heart are operative at that time? And so we discourage people from dating outside the faith, just as that rabbi was talking about earlier on. Now, think with me for a moment. What are the inevitable consequences of being unequally yoked? What we find out, if you look at Deuteronomy 7.4, you remember I read Moses saying, you shall not intermarry with the pagans, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And Nehemiah points out that's what Solomon did. It says his wives turned away his heart. First Kings chapter 11. And verse 4, it says his heart was no longer wholly true to the Lord. And he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, and the wicked Moloch of the Ammonites. And his heart turned away from the Lord. I read an article by Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, that she published on the Gospel Coalition website. And she said, listen, incompatibility essentially lets the air out of the tires of your Christian life. And if a Christian is married to a non-Christian, then so often the Christian has to push Christ to the margins of their life. Or they stay on fire for Christ, but then the spouse gets left behind. The spouse is marginalized. And there's tension and frustration for both people. And some people backslide and even experience the shipwreck of their faith. Someone might say to you, oh, well, you just need to settle. Don't settle. If you're wondering about this, again, I'd like to send you this booklet I've written called Pre-Engagement, and you can get it. Just call the church office at 516-922-7322. But I want you to remember in closing that the reason we surrender our legitimate desires to God's lordship is because of our own destiny. Our destiny is marriage to Christ. And we are told in Revelation 19, that it was granted to the church who is his bride, who makes herself ready to clothe herself with fine linen as she has been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Men, women, what are you looking for? Women, look for a man who loves you as Christ loves the church because he has experienced the love of Christ. Men, look for a woman it says in Proverbs 31, who fears the Lord, because the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And this comes from a knowledge of the gospel and an awareness that our great destiny is the marriage supper of the Lamb. For his bride, his church, makes herself ready, the righteous deeds of the saints. Would you do that? We're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Give your life to him. Let's get ready.